Together, we're going to grow in our faith as we gather around God's Word. Uh, We're going to turn to Daniel chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with us there. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. If you don't have your Bibles with you, you could turn to the words as they will be on the screen, and we can follow along together as we hear the Word of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians, and the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter into the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief officials gave, these, uh, gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. This is God's word offered to us in its reading and in its hearing. And together we give thanks to Lord God Almighty. Let's pray. Father, dear Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that uh, Sunday comes at just the right time, just when I need some encouragement to gather with my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Sunday comes at just the right time. Thank you that you're here with us, God, and we humbly ask that you would speak to us through your word. That you would offer us words of encouragement, of illumination, of conviction, of challenge, and of love. Father, please bind my tongue and my lips that no false word might pass from them, but just speak your truth. Holy Spirit, please grace us with the resting of your presence on us and let it bring transformation. That's what you do. Love you so much, Father. Thank you for loving us first. Amen. <clears throat> you ever think about just how many choices you make every single day? Right? From, from the moment you first wake up to the sound of your alarm or your biological clock until the moment you drift off into blissful rest, you are in a constant state of making decisions. It starts first for me with my alarm. Uh, Alarm goes off and I'm faced with the decision. Do I turn it off or just let it keep blaring, right? You have to choose to turn off your alarm. Uh, After, well, when you go to turn off your alarm, you have to make a decision between using the off button or pursuing a few more minutes of sleep with the snooze button. Anybody resonate with that? Um, You type A people are like, No, you just get up and get on with your day. Have some grace for those of us who struggle with the decision about off or snooze. 
after your alarm gets turned off for the last time and you get out of bed, another choice, a host of choices. What will I do first? Will I get dressed? Will I use the restroom? Maybe start the morning coffee, do a little stretching routine, um, check social media, texts, or email. I don't recommend starting off with those decisions. My personal recommendation is first thing, choose prayer, uh, just to set your emotional equilibrium for the day. But we're faced with these choices every morning. In the first uh, you know, 90 seconds of this sermon, you have all made multiple decisions each. You've made decisions to continue listening, to scratch your face, to check your phone for something more interesting to pay attention to. Hopefully not too many of you, but I love you if that's you. It's okay. Um, We are constantly making choices. Here's the thing about choices. There are many variables that go into our decisions. And the two that I'll highlight for us this morning are first, that not all choices are created equal. Some choices are more difficult than others, and some more easy to make. The second variable is that not all choices have the same level of consequence, right? Some decisions that we make have very little consequence, other decisions very big consequences, either for good or for bad. And the thing that's interesting about choices to me is that these two variables don't always correlate, right? Sometimes the most difficult decisions have a small consequence for good or for bad. And sometimes the easy ones have big consequences. For example, let's take uh, the alarm. If you go to turn off your alarm first thing in the morning, uh, you might fall back asleep and be late for work and get fired. I'm not speaking from personal experience with that uh, because I didn't get fired when that happened. (laughs) Another example, um, maybe you have experienced this or you've journeyed with a loved one through this experience of agonizing over where are we going to go out to eat on Friday night? Anybody agonize over this decision or spouses walked with a loved one through this decision? Nine times out of ten, this decision, though very difficult for some people, has very little consequence for good or for bad. Conversely, I remember one night when I was about 18 years old, I was hanging out late with some friends, uh, and I made a choice. It was a very easy choice for me. I chose to continue hanging out with those friends late into the night, even though it was a work night. I agonized absolutely zero over this choice. But it had a big consequence. As the next morning, I awoke on my way to work. You heard me right. I woke up on the way to work as I was rear-ending the car in front of me on Highway 290. Mom, did you know that? That happened. Um, The variables of our choices don't always correlate. And the reason this is important is because we don't know the outcome of our choices. We don't know whether a decision we make is going to have very little consequence or very big consequence for good or for bad. And that is why all of us go throughout our day-to-day life attempting to make good 
choices. Is that a fair statement that you desire to always make good choices in this moment? Fair? The reason is we don't know what's going to happen. We may have an educated guess. I think this will happen if I choose this. I think this will happen if I choose this. But we don't really know. And the last thing about our choices that's interesting for us this morning is that there are many factors influencing our decisions. We don't make choices in a vacuum. We don't make choices in a vacuum. Now, I want you to hold on to that thought, and then we're going to come back to it in a few minutes. But first, I am dying to get into some scripture. Anybody with me? All right. So Daniel, we all know the story of Daniel. Daniel in the lion's den, right? King Darius was approached by his administrators and tempted, uh, they tempted his prideful uh, heart and arrogance with this idea. How about a law, King Darius, where for 30 days, everyone has to pray only to you. And anyone who prays to any god, idol, or person, except for you, will be thrown into the lion's den. We all know this story. Daniel, uh, he does not submit to the law. He continues to pray to to the one true God, and he's thrown into the lion's den and survives for the glory of God. But for those of us who, maybe that's the extent of our knowledge of Daniel, we're just going to take a few minutes to level the playing field by looking here at the first two verses of Daniel chapter 1 in the history behind it. So Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These Nebuchadnezzar carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. So here in the context of Daniel, we have Israel defeated by Babylon, the temple robbed of its artifacts, and the people, according to 2 Kings 24, carried into exile in Babylon, around 10,000 of the best and brightest of the nation. And we need to zoom out just a little further um, because there's a, a phrase in this passage that's easy to skip over but very challenging to swallow if we take some time. Did you notice it? It's the phrase in verse 2, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim. That's kind of hard to sit with, right? God, this is your chosen people. This is your holy nation, your royal priesthood. And you're just going to deliver them into the hands of their enemies? How could you do that? How could you abandon your people? And when we as Christians experience things in our life that feel like earthly defeat... That's the very first temptation that our enemy will bring to your mind. God has abandoned you. God doesn't love you like he says he does. Now, do you think that the Lord was abandoning Israel in Daniel chapter 1? No? Anyone think he was? Well, let's zoom out 
again a little further. So in the context of Daniel, we are coming to the conclusion of a period of almost 500 years where Israel and Judah, for most of it, have been split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And they've been ruled and reigned over by kings, and God has been sending messages to his people via the prophets. And all throughout this 500-year period, God has been pleading with his people, turn from your wicked ways. Return to me. But if we zoom out even further, we see how did these people become the chosen people of God? Why do we call them God's chosen people? Well, we go back to Abraham in Genesis, and we see why this is important. God comes to Abraham and makes a covenant with him. He says, I will bless you so that you can be a blessing. And then he says this powerful promise to Abraham, through you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through one man, God's chosen agent of blessing to all the nations of the earth and all of creation. And so this is why it's so important for God to bring Israel back to him because they were his plan for restoration of relationship with all of the world. God said, you are going to be my people who will bring the world into relationship with me. I've chosen you to be a blessing, and through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But in the time leading up to Daniel's story, Israel has not been fulfilling their commission. They have been worshiping idols. They've been conforming to the patterns of the world and around them, the nations around them, and sexual immorality in greed, in oppression. And God hasn't abandoned Israel in Daniel chapter 1. God has been merciful for almost 500 years, pleading with them, turn back to me. God didn't abandon Israel. Israel abandoned God. And God loved them too much, and he loved the rest of the world too much to let them continue down that path. And God used Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and exile to send a meteor of interruption into the path that Israel was on so that they might be restored to relationship with him and then through them all nations can be restored to relationship with God. And this is where we find Daniel. Uh, Scholars suspect, estimate that Daniel was around 14 years old when he was carried into captivity in Babylon. Uh, And we're told in verses 3 through 5 what happens to Daniel when he arrives in Babylon. It says, starting in verse 3, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, if anyone's pregnant, you could put that name on your list of possibilities, Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. And this is who he was supposed to bring. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, And after that, they were to enter the king's service. 
Now, at face value, this doesn't sound so bad for Daniel, right? He, he's been taken into captivity, but he, at least he gets to live in the palace, right? Eat the king's food, drink the king's wine. Sounds like maybe it could be pretty cush, but I'm going to invite us to take a deeper look and use our imaginations to put ourselves in the shoes of Daniel. You're 14 years old. Remember what life was like when you were 14 years old? You're 14 years old and you get word that a fierce army from a faraway land is on the move and they're coming to take you down. You hear the low rumble of the soldiers' footsteps marching your way long before you see the glint of the sun off their swords and their spears. And you tremble. And the armies of Babylon come and they lay siege to your city. When one army besieges a city, they surround the city completely with one purpose in mind, to cut off all resources, all coming and going, no water, no food from this city, to starve them out. And we don't know how long they were besieged from this passage in Daniel. But you're 14 years old and all outside the walls of your city there are soldiers And they're trying to starve you to death. One day you receive word that the wall has been breached. That the army has made their way into the city. You would be terrified. What are they going to do to me? Are they going to kill me? Or worse? And then you're put in chains, and you're ripped away from your home, from your family, from your friends, and you're marched almost 1,700 miles to a land you have not known, a people you have not seen, a language you have not heard. What will become of me, Daniel must have thought, when I arrive in this foreign city of Babylon? You get there and um, you're pulled out from amongst the group. The young men are pulled out and they're lined up in rows. And Babylonian administrators walk down the lines of exiled boys with a critical eye. Every inch of you inspected for some defect, some flaw, some problem, some some malformity, some word that you're, you're not bright or you're not strong enough, you're, you're small, you have some sort of problem that would disqualify you. How objectifying. And you're told that you have been selected, oh thanks, you have been selected to serve in this king's palace who just ruined your life. This is exile. And exile is not a cushy experience for Daniel. Now here's the really interesting thing that I have found about the book of Daniel. Uh, I read the entire book of Daniel in preparation for this sermon. And Daniel is full of people making choices. 
right? And especially Daniel is faced with all these choices. Will he eat the king's food and drink the king's wine or not? Will he approach the king who just took down his people with a word of prophecy about his doom or not? Will he speak up and save the lives of the magicians and the diviners of evil spirits, um, or will he let them die? Will he worship a false god, or will he subject himself to death? Daniel is full of choices. And what's amazing about Daniel is that Daniel has no record of any mistakes. Did you ever think about that? Daniel has no record of any mistakes. The account of Daniel is an account of a man who is above reproach, even as a 14-year-old boy, faithful in the choices he's presented with. Now, we know that Daniel was not perfect because he's a human being. But for some reason, the author of Daniel recorded not one flaw. And this is noteworthy because if you've read much of the Bible, you know that just about every single character in Scripture who gets much screen time at all has a host of failures and flaws, and most of them, their failings to some great magnitude, right? And, and this is, I believe, deliberate by the authors of Scripture to include the flaws of the people depicted. And the reason I think it's deliberate is because it lets people like me and you take some comfort in the fact that God will use broken sinners to accomplish his good purposes. That our failings don't disqualify us from being used in God's kingdom. But by the same token as it's intentional that the flaws of most people are included in Scripture, I believe it's intentional that Daniel's record is flawless. I think we're intended to look at Daniel's life and say, what makes you different? How can I aspire to live this same life that is above reproach like you, Daniel? And what makes this flawless record so impressive is that Daniel, of all people for all time, did not make his choices in a vacuum. He didn't. Daniel faced uh, pressures and forces, both internal and external, emotional, physical, and spiritual, leading him, trying to influence him to make certain decisions that would have made many of us lose our faith and choose the path of least resistance. But not Daniel. Daniel, in verse 4, we're told, was indoctrinated in the language and the literature of Babylon. He was being led by his captors to uh, forget and forsake everything that he knew about his homeland and his home God, to leave them behind and embrace fully the world and the culture and the pleasures of this new city, Babylon. We know this even more so to be true because in verses 6 and 7, we hear that Daniel and his friends literally had their identities stripped from them. Anyone in here named Daniel? Do you know what your name means? It means God is my judge. God is my judge. In Daniel's very name, there is a reminder of the God who loves him and made him and calls him to live a holy life. 
And Daniel is stripped of that reminder and given the name Belteshazzar, which is an ode to the false god Baal and to the king of Babylon. Daniel is facing so many pressures that are leading him to forget and forsake his God and his people and embrace a new way of life. And yet Daniel remains faithful. Brothers and sisters, the story of Daniel is the story of you and me. You see, you might be a citizen of this country, but you are living as an exile in a foreign land. And if you don't believe me, please don't tune out. Just give me a moment to to prove it to you. So a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Jason brought us a very encouraging word out of Romans chapter 12. And there's uh, certain things that have just really been resonating and echoing through my heart and mind pretty much every day for the last 14 days since I heard this sermon. And so I'm going to bring us back to Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It says this, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, there are two things that I want us to take hold of this morning from Romans 12. The first is this, that the author of Romans, the Apostle Paul, is operating under an assumption that there is an entity other than the church known as the world, and their patterns and priorities for life are not the same as God's. Did you hear that? Do not conform to the patterns of this world. So when Paul is talking about the world, he's not talking about planet Earth, he's not talking about creation, and he's not even talking about all the human beings who've been made. What Paul is referring to is a realm in which the predominant patterns and priorities for life are counter to God's. The predominant patterns and priorities for life are counter to God's. And Paul is not alone in this assumption. You can look to Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1. You can look to John in 1 John chapter 2. You can look to James in James chapter 4. And you can even look to Jesus in Mark chapter 8, among other references. All the authors of the New Testament are operating under this assumption that there is a realm that is counter to the church and their priorities and patterns for life are counter to God's. The second thing that we need to take hold of this morning from Romans chapter 12 is the goal of transformation. We have this phrase, uh, so that, then, then you will be able. So when we have been transformed by the renewing of our minds, then we are able to test and discern what is the will of God. Now this is important. Because we are people of free will and we have a will. God doesn't conscript us to his will. Which is why we need to test and discern, God, what is your will for my life? So that I can align my own will with yours. And choose a new pattern and a new priority for living. This is the call of the Christian life and it's put before us by Paul in Romans chapter 12. 
But we can go beyond just the scriptures to prove that there's this existence of the world. We can look at culture. There are many examples, um, but I only have time to go into one this morning. So I've decided to choose uh, TV shows. And that's because I've heard it said that if you want to know a people, take a look at the media that they produce and they consume. Make sense? So TV shows. Uh, There are many TV shows. I'll just speak to three that I have seen all the way through myself, so I know what I'm talking about. Three of my favorite TV shows of all time. Friends. Any Friends fans? The Office. And New Girl. All right. So these three TV shows all combined have a total of 583 episodes, which is sobering because I've seen many of them multiple times and all of them at least once. Um, But that's another (laughs) sermon or therapy session. But um, 583 episodes, okay? It's a decent sample size of culture. And I challenge you to find one episode out of 583 that doesn't normalize the consumption of pornography, normalize the lifestyle of living to seek and find your next casual sexual partner, or make light of sexual partners being something to be consumed and conquered rather than someone to be loved in a self-sacrificial way within a Christian marriage. If you find one episode out of 583 that doesn't in some way make light of and over-sexualize life that we live, I will very happily buy you a coffee and we can talk about it. The American theologian and author uh, Walter Brueggemann describes living in exile in this way. Exile is the experience of knowing that one is an alien And perhaps even in a hostile environment where the dominant values run counter to one's own. Living in a hostile environment where the dominant values run counter to one's own. Does that sound like our media, brothers and sisters? So this is the calling of the Christian life. Daniel models the calling of the Christian life to live as an exile in a foreign land amongst the world where the predominant priorities and patterns for life are counter to God's and to make faithful choices anyway. And when I experience the tension of that calling and what feels oftentimes like an impossibility of that invitation it leads me to come to Daniel with the question, bro, how did you do it? How did you do it? And so we're going to turn to Daniel chapter 6. In Daniel chapter 6, we have what is one of the only and definitely the clearest clue as to what made Daniel tick and kept him walking such a straight and narrow path. Daniel chapter 6 is the story of Daniel in the lion's den, and we're going to start reading in verse 1. It pleased Darius 
the king of the land at the time, to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. And here we have this testimony of the man Daniel has become after maybe 60 or 70 years in exile. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. A Jew set over the whole kingdom of Persia and Babylon. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Then straight from the mouths of his enemies, we get the most powerful testimony of all. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. And you remember what happens next. They were right. They were right. They went to the king. They presented the rule to make Daniel fall and catch him in a trap. And the king thought it was a good idea. And we learn in verse 10 what Daniel did. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. What a choice, brothers and sisters. When presented with death, Daniel went home and prayed three times a day, just as he had done before. This is representative of a man whose life was anchored in the midst of not belonging. In a land where he did not belong, where he was not born, where he was not a citizen, Daniel anchored himself in the place where he belonged most, in the presence of Father God and seeking the Holy Spirit's power three times every day to be faithful in his choices as an exile. This example from Daniel is the invitation for you and me. It was the secret to his faithfulness in all of his decisions. We are invited. We are invited to enter into the presence of Father God and encounter the power of Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ as often as we want. And as we live as exiles in a place where we do not belong, the world. We anchor ourselves in the place where we belong most with God. And here's the great thing about uh, the existence of the world is that we don't have to stay there. And just as God commissioned Israel through Abraham to 
restore all the nations of the earth into right relationship with him. That commissioning has been passed on by Jesus to the church. We are called to live this Christian life as exiles among the world to invite those who are pulled sway by the world into the church, a counterculture against the world. I'm going to close this morning by reading a scripture over you. This is a quote from Jesus in the Gospel of John. And I want you to receive it as Jesus speaking over you personally, his saint. Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of Truth. And now read this last portion aloud over yourself with me together. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your mercy and your grace. And thank you that you invited Jesus to return to your side that the Holy Spirit might be sent to dwell with us and in us. Father, as we live this Christian life among the world, making choices to lay down the will of the flesh, and the priorities and patterns of the world to align our own will with yours. Let us be marked as a people who enter into your presence like Daniel three times every day, no matter the consequences. And let us encounter the power of Holy Spirit. And through the help of Holy Spirit to aspire to be as Daniel was a saint above reproach and finally God if, if there is anyone uh, in this room who's not been living in this way the enemy wants to tempt them and say you should believe that you're too far gone or God doesn't want to use you. I just pray against that lie in Jesus' name right now. By your Holy Spirit, whisper the truth to their hearts that we're never too far gone, that you love us unconditionally and that you use broken people to accomplish your good purposes. Fathers, we continue into a time of offering. I ask that you would bless the gifts and multiply them to bear fruit in your kingdom. And I ask that you would bless the givers with the freedom that comes from giving things away. We love you. Thank you for loving us first.